going to be a little bit random because it's really only this week that I, I sat down to really think. Scott asked me to speak on... Oh, by the way, Dave, what's the finishing time? Oh, you've got an hour. Okay, might not need all of that, but... Um, uh, a little bit random because Scott's asked me to speak on this landmines thing and so what this is is me trying to consolidate um, two or three years particularly of working with young guys planting churches and watching what's happening... Uh, and so on. And um, the more you want to bounce it backwards and forwards, just in the middle of things, hey, I want to make a comment, uh, let's, let's go. Um, see, church planting is great, and I think it's the number one evangelistic strategy that we, that we should follow. Not the only, but the number one, the first uh, evangelistic strategy. And we've got a lot of keen young pastors and couples out there doing things, and they are attracting new people, but there are all sorts of problems as well. So this is trying to work out uh, what are the problems, what are the lessons that we could learn and so on, um, and let's please make it interactive. Uh, some of the problems that, are, that, that you see are just the plain old standard problems of any kind of ministry. And so I've got there underestimating things, like uh, underestimating people's spiritual blindness. It just... Uh, I don't know if you've tried to explain the gospel to somebody, an intelligent person and so on, and you explain the gospel in crystal clear terms and all you get is teddy bear eyes. I don't know if you look at the teddy bear lately, but you know what I mean, right? Okay, all you get is a glassy-eyed... And it's exactly uh, what Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. People are spiritually blind. Two Corinthians, uh, sorry, Ephesians 2, people are dead spiritually. So underestimating that, the other can be underestimating... Um, the power of the gospel and God's spirit at work to actually open eyes, which Paul says just a verse or two later, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you've got to hold them together. People are spiritually blind and dead and yet God is powerful and you, okay. Um, next one, and this might sound really obvious, but to underestimate the power of the, the gospels as written uh, to explain the gospel. So I, I don't know that we, we're so busy sometimes working out clever tracts and all sorts of things. If you can get somebody to actually read the gospels, it's very powerful. All right? I know that's kind of a dumb, obvious thing to say, but that's, that's why I like the, the Simple Christianity course. You, you start at Luke chapter 1 and you finish at Luke chapter 24 and you read through with them. Um, sec- well, hopefully they read it all at home, but you, you read slabs of, of, um, of Luke's gospel. So on Wednesday night, we read through the parable of the, of the lost sons, the prodigal son, and it's just, it's just beautiful. Okay, So that's, that's another thing we need to be clear on. Uh, the other thing that, that's hit me, and that is the time that it takes for someone who's a new Christian to actually mature and become ministry-minded and really, if you like, to pick up a paddle and... and and, and be paddling. Um, who knows, maybe a year, two, three years, something like that. It just, we've got to remember that. Now, what's the, what's the, um, what's the lesson out of that? And that's this. Uh, reformed theology, uh, good theology, 
um, election, the, necessary, uh, the necessity of the work of the Spirit, uh, the idea of effectual calling, the sovereignty of God, and so on. Um, it, it's not just beautiful, and it's not just true. It's absolutely essential to be able to do ministry properly. Okay, do you know what I mean? If you haven't got the understanding of people's spiritual blindness, and if you haven't got election clear, you won't last in ministry. Because you're going to get knocked down and knocked back and people won't listen and so on. If you don't actually believe in election, if you don't, you're not going to be able to keep, keep doing that. Okay? So, um, what was it? If you want to go plant churches, we need, we need people with a real understanding of theology. And I think the vast majority of people who are going to lead churches need formal theological education. There's the one or two exceptions, but I think the vast majority need some kind of formal theological um, education. I'm not expecting I'll get an argument here on that. Uh, I think you do. Uh, and I guess the other thing to say is in terms of expectations, you need to remember this is not America. Okay? And so our American, our American brothers, I think, sometimes don't understand the differences between the USA and here in terms of how hard the soil is, in terms of people's response to the gospel, in terms of culture and so on. Um, and I think sometimes some of our young guys have, uh, you know, have unrealistic expectations or just, this is not America. Um, anyway, uh, not that we should expect small things. Yeah. Okay, um, next thing I've noticed, sorry, any comments on that? A theology, not just, not just beautiful, not just true, but essential to actually lasting in ministry. That's what we need. Could Dave? Just outline quickly, um, what do you think are the main differences between USA and America? I, I know we say this, this is not America, but what would happen in America and why, why does it happen personally? Uh, well, I mean, you know, I've been in America about four times. I, but You're it, an expert. Eh? You're an expert. Yes, I'm an expert, yeah. Um, what's the difference? Well, I think they began, the American, um, America began with the Pilgrim Fathers, the Mayflower and so on and the Puritans, and we're a bunch of convicts that turned up. Um, that could be one of the differences. Now, I, just, I think that, that uh, America is at a, uh, fundamentally a much more Christian culture, and it's much more culturally acceptable to be involved in a church over there. Uh, even Homer Simpson goes to church. Crocodile Dundee never would. Okay, um, now that's not to say that ministry is easier over there, because as, as I talk to guys who have worked in kind of Bible Belt areas, everybody goes to church, but they're not necessarily Christian. And so, what the guys, some of these guys, Matt Chandler, you hear him speak in Texas. His great job is convincing people that they're not truly in the kingdom of God first, and then getting them to actually switch on to what it means to be Christian. So I just think it's easier to draw a crowd in the USA, in most places in the USA, than it is here. Um, there's other senses in which cultural Christianity makes gospel ministry even harder for them. I think that's, that's some of the differences. Um, the other thing, of course, is that we tend to hear about the guys who are particularly gifted and have, are particularly blessed in what they're doing. <coughs> the churches are five, six, seven, ten thousand. The average church in the US, I'm told, is 70 people, like it is here. We just hear about the gigantic churches. Okay? So young guys start off and they want to be Mark Driscoll. Well, I'm a fan of Mark Driscoll's, but there's only one of him. Do you know? And, and it's, you've got to 
we've got to be realistic. It's, it's hard work. God may, God, you know, God will bless what you do if you're faithful. But um, yeah, that's all. Just that's some of the thoughts about the U.S. Anyone want to? Okay. So we've got plenty to learn from our American brothers. We just need to remember this is not. I'll tell you the other thing. You go to New Zealand and get off the plane and think, you know, they uh, they speak, you know, their vowels are a little different or whatever. New Zealand's a very different culture to here. And they don't like Aussies coming over there and telling them what to do, okay? And I, it made me realise, I think, mm, yeah, okay. So, yeah, there's a, we mustn't assume just because we speak the same language, more or less, that, that cultures are the same. Um, next one, uh, I've noticed inertia from uh, denominations, uh, generally. And that is um, church planting landmines. There's, a, there's often a lack of urgency from denominations. Why? Because I said palliative care is comfortable. Um, there's, a, there's a reluctance to take risks. You know, the denominations will think, oh, we're saving up our resources for a rainy day. Uh, I would actually look at it as saying we're wrapping them in a napkin for when the Lord comes back. You can hold the napkin when he comes back. Um, there's also the kind of silo mentality. That is, we're doing our own thing, and um, especially if you've got a parish system, everyone's in favour of, you know, mission and doing things until you actually go and do something in their parish. And then you get the NIMBY thing, not in my backyard. Um, the other thing I notice is that we talk about mission so much we think we do it. Uh, we talk and talk and talk, a bit short on action. And so what the lesson there I think that I'm seeing is, I reckon in terms of uh, mission and new churches, wherever possible, work with the existing denominations. Really, because that's where the resources are, that's where buildings are, wherever you can, work with the existing denominations, okay? Without compromising your theology, but work with the existing denominations. But where you can't do that, you've got to go around them. Uh, you see, denominations and even individual churches can have great facilities. Brilliant. I can, think of a, I can think of a building in Sydney that I reckon I'd give two of my kids to get, I reckon. It'd be just about worth it. Um, but that wouldn't be enough. Okay, that would that payment would not be enough to them. Um, what I mean is, individual churches have great facilities and and all that kind of thing and money and everything, but the cost of working with them is too high. In terms of restrictions, what you're able to do, the platform cost is just too high. And so, if you want to sum it all up, you're better off naked than handcuffed to a corpse. That's that's a preacher's way of saying. Okay, so but I reckon wherever you can work with denominations. And where you can't get the job done working with denominations, you'll have to go around them and so on. Okay, uh, Some of the denominations are making real progress in terms of starting new churches and mission, um, and unfortunately many are not. But, uh, some of them are. Um, what about the um, number three? The, if I talk about the church planters before, um, before they start, I think what I've seen over the years is, is has been a... Um, some, uh, often a lack of actually assessing people's gifts and how they're wired up. So the question is not, uh, should you be in Christian ministry? The question is sharper than that is, is, should you be planting a church or should you be in a startup ministry? And I've seen people sent, sent out to do things, I think of one church plant in particular, where the man sent to do it is just not gifted in that way. And in hindsight, if you'd looked, of course it was going to struggle and it was going to half kill him and half kill the church and, and, and so on. 
And so uh, having seen church, the, the assessment process, or different ones, but the one that uh, Geneva's got now, um, which uh, Acts 29, our American brothers gave us um, the initial church planning thing and we've tweaked it for Australia and so on. Scott's done a great job with that. What I've been amazed at is the difference that you have a cup of coffee with a young couple and talk. Yep, okay, you get something. But the church planter assessment is like getting an MRI of them and their marriage and their ministry. It's just the difference it makes is amazing. Okay, I've probably done, I don't know, Scott will tell me. How many assessments now, Scott? I don't know. He's gone, left the room. Um, 20, maybe. And, um, okay, significant difference. And so it really means that we can take giftedness seriously. Um, in fact, what, what you see often in churches now, I think, is um, if I could talk about leadership, you've got, you got good men leading churches, but you've got, they're in the wrong place. They're not gifted to do it, okay, often. And it's, they're doing their best, but it's killing them and it's killing the church. And generally, denominations just don't have the will um, to move guys who can't do the job. I think that's, uh, um, or well, some depends on the denomination. But we just don't seem to take giftedness really seriously. Um, now that that idea of giftedness that's particularly sharp when it comes to a startup ministry, because you kind of you live or die by whether you can get it right. Uh, so lesson. A proper assessment is a great help to either encourage people this direction or to say, no, please go and try some other kind of ministry. Thoughts? Okay. Uh, now, here's one that I have. <laughs> here's, Dave, yep, yep. Um, yep, I've seen different stats on it. I think what it does show is the assessment process dramatically reduces kind of failure in terms of church plants, dramatically. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I haven't asked Scotty Sanders. As a, the Acts 29 had quite amazing statistics about the difference that assessment makes. If you, if, for, uh, if you want me to tell you... Uh, Basically, the stats as we've found them in Australia in three years now, we've had a, more or less, we've had about 100 people put their hand up and say, I'd be interested in being assessed. Of those 100, about half, about 50, have actually completed the process. Um, uh, it's about 12 hours' work you, to get ready. You submit a sermon online. And you, the planter and his wife need to be interviewed and so on, but about half, so about 50. Of the 50, about 40 have been accepted and maybe 10 we've said, look, we don't think you should do this. We don't think God's gifted you in this way. We're not saying you shouldn't be in ministry, but we think if you try this, there'll be too much strain on your marriage or you'll have trouble leading people or whatever it is. Of the 40, then about 30 of those we've just said, yep, go for it. Just go do it. It's great and we'll help you. Of those other 10... There's been conditions on them. Um, I might have got that wrong, but, but the conditions might be... Sorry? Uh, sorry, 10 we've said, thank you. 10 we've said, just go do it, just go do it, that's right. But three quarters of them, there's some condition, like we'd say, yeah, look, we think you could do this, but you ought to go and get marriage counselling on this particular issue. Uh, you ought to go to a few different church plants. 
uh, you need to finish Bible college, here's a particular issue you need to sort out, um, or whatever it is, okay? Um, so, and then we set those people up with a coach who has read all the assessment documents as well. And so there'll be different pressure points for different people depending on the um, uh, on who they are and where they're going to plant and, and so on, okay? Uh, lesson, I, the assessment process, I think, is gold. Now, we can assess people and we can say to them, look, we don't think you should do this, and they can ignore us and go and do it. We're not the Pope, right? They can do whatever they want. Um, now, sometimes it's, we'll say, we don't think you should do this because we think you're not teachable and you don't listen. And then they say, we're going to go and do it anyway. So, well, you know, what do you... I think I've only had one, I personally have only had one of those. But anyway. All right, so lesson, uh, assessment uh, is a great help. There's different assessment um, uh, processes around and, uh, you know, the Redeemer Church Planning Network has one and Acts 29 and we've kind of developed uh, our own out of, uh, out of the Acts 29 um, process and so on. Okay. The, yes, um, Murray. Uh, what we're looking for in a planner? Y- yeah, yeah. Uh, I reckon one of the key things is that their marriage is strong. I want to know, does the wife, is the wife with him 110%? Because usually these guys are so keen, they're rushing on, you know, have, have they actually taken uh, her with them on the journey? Is she keen as well? Um, and that's not always the case. That's one of the key things. The next one is emotional resilience, that you can, um, uh, you, can you get knocked down and will you be able to get up again? Um, the ability to lead, some entrepreneurial ability and so on, the ability, and I also want to know, are they, have they got straight theology? Um, sometimes that's an issue. Are they theologically straight? We've got quite a detailed um, a theological statement uh, and some were complementarian, uh, that sort of thing. Are they, are they down the line on that in terms of being part of the network? Um, yeah, resilient. To, and I want to know, can they preach? If you're going to grow a church, it actually grows under the umbrella of preaching and can they communicate the scriptures and so on. So there's some of the, the key things. I guess I want to see how much um, part of the, the key part of it too is a series of references from older, younger and peers and what people think about that. Uh, that's, that's one of the key things we look for and how do other people regard them and so on. Uh, how self-aware are they? Uh, can they lead? Kind of all of those. And what's interesting is in each each of the um, assessments, often there's a different pressure point that comes up. So there's one young bloke who wanted to go plant a church, and I thought he really he really had the goods. He could do it all himself. Except his wife was asking kind of trivial questions like, "How will we be paid? Where will we live? What school will the kids go to?" Yeah, those kind of little questions that wives ask. And what I mean, that's, sorry, that's an attempted humour, okay? Right. <laughs> um, uh, and what did it mean? Well, he hadn't uh, spent time with her answering those questions. In fact, he hadn't worked it out. Um, and uh, basically said to him, mate, unless she's with you, you can't do this. And he went away and spent three months with her, working that out, answering those questions, firming it up, and then to the point where she said, yep, I'm with you. A little bit kind of take a deep breath, close your eyes and, okay, let's do it. But she was with him. Uh, if he hadn't done that, uh, it wouldn't have worked. 
Um, so that's that, that's what I mean about is she with him and, and so on. But that was a that's that pressure point in that for that one. Okay, there's others like um, could the can this young man actually lead a congregation up front? So far, he's done all his leading kind of from behind the scenes, which you know that anyway, so there's different pressure points. Um, did you want someone, Angie? No? Okay. Uh, okay, full-time versus part-time. Here's, here's my dilemma that, and I don't know what the answer is, but I now see the problem. If someone, if you've got a, a let's just leave um, the mother-daughter church plant thing, whether you've got the mother church and planting with the daughter church, just leave that aside for the moment. If you've got a start-up um, group, say you have, you're 15, 20 people, something like that, who are going to plant a church somewhere. If you've got a full-time church planter, they can put their time and their energy and their effort into it, and it makes a huge difference as you get started. I've just noticed the young guys who are full-time on their church plants, um, the few that I'm involved with, it really uh, it makes a huge difference. If you're part-time and trying to cover all those bases, and as I realise I am on kind of weekends, you it's much slower and much harder work. But here's the problem. If you want a, a full-time um, startup church planter, I'm going to ask Scott a number in a minute. If you want to pay a full-time minister's wage, if you want to house them as a couple, especially, say, in Sydney where I live, if you want to rent a building, if you want to have, I don't know, you know a photocopier and a computer, the startup budget for a church plant like that full-time Salary? Okay, 140 or 155,000 for 15 people. Now, um, what's that? That's $10,000 a person. It, eh? Yeah. What was that, mate? Yeah, but if you have 15 people and it costs 150,000, you imagine you're paying, you'd be cheaper to get rid of the minister and pay everyone 100 bucks a week to turn up a church. Yeah, and I reckon well, we cut it to 50. Don't you reckon you'd get 30 people who'd come sit in church for an hour for 50 bucks each? That would be much cheaper. Okay? You, play, you play a video of you know, John Piper video, 50 bucks each, you're up to 30, no problem. Now, what I mean is it's a massive investment. And I can't help but think we've got to work out a way of starting new churches that's cheaper than, than $150,000. And yet, uh, the one I'm thinking of, uh, Toby in Surrey Hills, cost that much, and it's going gangbusters after 18 months. In, in Surrey Hills, the gay capital of Sydney, he's got a great shirt. He's, he's done it. Versus you can start part-time and small, but it's just much harder, but it's also much cheaper. So there's, there's the trade-off. Okay? How's Toby managed to do it? He's done it by fundraising and determination. He's got churches to back him. He's got individuals to back him and, and so on. But that's our, that's our dilemma. I don't know if anyone wants to solve it. Uh, yeah? Okay. Um, but I do think we need, if we're going to plant the numbers of churches we need, we've got to have people who are prepared to be you know, tent makers. It's just a bit harder. It's going to take longer. Okay? Um, all right. I, however, I'm... I think for it's easy. So if you're going to fund, if if you are going to give the church planter all the money that he needs to get started, 
it's not necessarily the best thing for him and his wife. Now, uh, Toby went and raised it. He, he just took a deep breath and he went and asked people for money, held the fundraising functions, did all that. He raised the money. Uh, he's hungry. Just gifting it all from a denomination to someone is not necessarily the best thing for them. Um, uh, You've you got to have people who are hungry and you need to learn how to fundraise and so on as you go. And if a, if a church planter can't raise some of that money himself, I doubt that he can grow a church. Okay, so you've got to uh, build that in. Okay, next one. Um, talk about the importance of assessment. Before they get started, the importance of coaching. Here's the old guy rant. You ready? I'm a granddad now. I can do an old guy rant. Uh, most young pastors, when they come out of uh, Bible college, they know their theology, but they don't know what to do with their time. Okay? Um, Let's assume that church runs for about two hours and you've got two hours afterwards where you're talking to people. That leaves you with 164 hours a week to do what? Uh, uh, um, what, what do you do? Uh, and um, it, it's, I think the hardest question in ministry, the hardest thing is what should I be doing now? Uh, what should I be doing now so that in a year's time I've got some leaders trained? What should I be doing now so that, in, that, that I have non-Christian contacts? What should I be doing now so that I keep my brain working? What should I do now so that I become a better preacher? What should I be doing now so that I can afford to um, employ a lady to work with the women of our church? What, uh, do I spend time with my kids? Or It's, that, it's learning how to... It's one of the key things that coaches will do. Um, and it's... if. If you're going to an established church with a senior minister and you're the assistant, there's a whole lot more uh, give and take in the system. You can have a year to kind of get used to the idea of what you do with your time and, and, and so on. If you're in a church plant, especially on your own and you're the only one there, kind of, it's much, much harder. So a, a coach who will speak to you, support you, help you with your priorities, all that kind of thing... Um, makes a huge difference, huge difference. Thoughts? Okay. And I, I think with the young guys I've worked with more than anything else, it's, okay, open your diary, show me what you're doing with your time. Ah, okay. What, you know, and, and I've been doing it for 30 years or something, 25 years now, and I'm still struggling with how to manage that other 164 hours of the week. Lesson, assessment, coaching, very important. Um, the, the core group, launch group thing, uh, I think four and five are a little bit kind of, yeah, a bit overlap here, and that's this. If you start, I think what I've noticed is if you start with a large group, especially young adults, and you get the, the culture and the vibe just right, you'll attract a whole lot of other Christian young adults from other places, okay? And it's easy to be kind of, I don't know if it happens in Geelong, but in Sydney, it's easy to be kind of the, the evangelical hotspot, okay, where people want to go and it's the kind of the, the fashionable, trendy place. Uh, I'm not against that. And I, there's a couple of places happening at the moment, and God bless them. It, it's great to get the young adults together. Uh, but the problem with that is you've got to be extra determined to do evangelism because you'll just grow by transfer growth. So you've actually really got to be, it's the determination. 
uh, to do evangelism. Versus if you start really small and you've got like, you know, four people in a lounge room, you've got to evangelize, okay? You get sick of looking at the same three other faces eventually. You've, you've got to do it. So fast growth in a church plant is not necessarily kingdom growth. It can be transfer. All right. So just saying, you whatever whatever group you start with, you've got to be determined that you're going to evangelize, because just starting new churches does not see people converted. You've got to be determined to chase people who aren't believers. Um, the the next one I had there about launch the it's mature Christians, um, are mature Christians who are who are mission-minded and prepared to put themselves out for the the sake of making relationships with people who aren't Christian and so on. They're the key to actually growing, I think. Um, the people who who will put themselves out to be the social glue that holds a group together, the, um, to do the ministry uh, that operates under the preaching umbrella. Absolute key. Um, I'm just realising how long it takes to, 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 if you like, to build those people. Um, it, it, you see someone converted, it can take two, three, more, more years to get them, to get them there. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, how do you? I've had people who, one couple who didn't want to join what we're doing because they kind of felt like, well, you guys will always just be a mission station and we want a church church. So that's a real question we're trying to answer at the moment. Um, how do you run a meeting that will be truly church and will still have this real evangelistic edge on it? Um, and I'm realizing we need, we need to do more than just our Sunday meetings. So I'm meeting with some of the guys one-to-one, reading the Bible with them and so on, but we need something else that happens. Now, it's trying to do that something else while you're doing it part-time. And we're, Yeah. Now, does that may not answer you? Do you want to? Yeah. That's it. If you're just running the, the evangelistic meeting, how are you meeting the needs of the Christian people and how are you seeing people mature? And how, It's exactly what we're trying to work out how to do. That's the question. Um, Okay. Uh, The other thing I've noticed is that there is an advantage, I think, of planting churches with younger couples, because I think you attract people like yourself in terms of age and stage, and younger people seem more ready to move church and come and help you. By the time you get to be uh, old like me, people are pretty settled, and it's hard to get middle-aged people to move churches or to come with you and so on. We've deliberately not tried not to poach people, but even as I've spoken to people who could come and join us, there's a reluctance. And younger ones seem more ready to move and uh, jump on board. Uh, thoughts? Yep. Effectively reaches out to middle age, older demographic, or it's just young adults, attracting other young adults. Have I seen the church plan that reaches out to kind of the middle age uh, demographic? Not much. Um, 
almost always the ones who are planting the churches are younger, like um, uh, early 30s or a bit or younger, and you, you attract people like yourself, which is just the way it works. That's, that's fine. And I don't know many kind of baldy-headed grandfathers who are trying to do this. Uh, now, is it harder at our age and stage? Well, maybe a little because people have had a chance, more chance to complicate their lives. Uh, that's one thing that's, that's noticeable. Um, but we do need to work out how to reach, you know, the baby boomers and, and new churches. Yeah. But I also don't mind starting churches with young ones with little kids because the most effective age to reach people is when you've got young school-age kids. That just, it's just a beautiful time to network, to get to know people. Your best evangelists will be young mums at the school gate. Just, yeah, brilliant. You, you hook up because of your kids. They become friends. The husbands get drawn in. That's the way. Uh, traditionally, the way that the Sydney Anglicans have grown is in suburbs where there's young families and you do your, youth, your children's and youth work well and that brings in the parents and, and so on. And that's great in those suburbs. But in suburbs where the, the child boom has gone through, or the non-Anglo suburbs or whatever, we're scratching our heads. So, yep. Okay, let me, let me keep going. I've got a um, uh, trail hotspot evangelist. Uh, oh, yeah, overstretching resources. Yeah, this one, I was talking to a young guy just, on, um, just this week uh, who said he'd, he'd uh, done this. What, it's really easy to have this model in your head. What I want to do is I want to run kind of the full, the full a church with the full gamut of, um, of programs and things to offer people when, when we get started. And so, you know, you want to run your kids' program and you want to have a really nice morning tea or supper and you want to do music really well and you need your drum kit and the different things and so on. So here I've just worked out, if you want to run a basic kind of church meeting or if you want to run a church meeting with the bells and whistles, I mean, here we go. Morning tea or supper, you need four people. Music, I reckon you need at least three Set up and pack up if you have four for each of those in terms of putting out chairs and all that kind of thing. Sunday school, probably four people. Uh, welcoming, you'd need two people, a man and a woman on the, um, uh, on the door. Um, wash up and everything after morning tea or supper, at least two people. Crash, probably two. Add that up, you've got 25 people. That also means that during the meeting, uh, sorry, each week you've got 25 people on a roster and then during the meeting, when you start your church meeting, 11 of your people are not sitting down the front. And I had one young guy say to me, by the time we did everything, there was only three people in the congregation. All right. What's the point? Unless you've got 40 people, you can't do that. If you've got less than 40, I'll tell you what you're doing. You're flogging the horses every week and they get tired. And what I've heard a number of church planters say is, our people are so busy making the whole thing work, they got no energy to invite their friends. They're, they're, they're tired. So I think what you've got to do, until you get to a certain size, and I reckon it's probably 40 to, to run a full-on public meeting, you've just got to cut your cloth according to what you've got. Uh, so in our, in our meeting, we don't have singing. We, we've got no music. We've got no, no musos. We call our, our little church Nilsong. Okay, so <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, it's an oldie but a goodie. Yeah. Um, now, will we ever have singing? I don't know. I might. Have, I, I don't know. I don't know if we will or not. I, partly because it uh, will it freak out people who aren't Christian. I I don't know. But at the moment, we've got no musos. We don't sing, 
our children's program is that Pete and Bettina's lovely teenage daughter um, has got some stuff there. And if kids, kids come along, she goes and reads them a story or whatever. That's all we can do. And then um, as you grow, your resources grow and so on. Just don't stretch yourself um, too much. Don't, so don't flog your people to make the infrastructure work so much so they haven't got the energy to invite people to, to do the relational things that will make your church grow. Um, and that's a, it's a trade-off, of course. If you want young families to join, you've got to have a kids program. But you, um, I tell you what some guys, what some people have done, which seems to work well, they've had a soft launch. And that is they've started a meeting, but they haven't pushed it publicly. They've started a meeting and let it kind of just um, tick along and they've got, they've got their routines working. And the mate of mine says, you're not really a church till, you, till you're fighting over rosters. So they get their rosters happening and so on. And, and, um, and then six months later, after they've been meeting, then they make a big public noise and they have a hard launch, as they call it. But it's once they've got the system, once they've got a public meeting actually working, there's small groups in place uh, and so on. Now, we've got to finish 6.15, is it? No? Yeah, maybe 6.15. Okay, right. Um, all right. Let me just, let me leave the, oh, the strengths and weaknesses of each stage uh, just really quickly. When you start a church and you're, and you're under 30, the great advantage is you can know everybody. Uh, and in some ways, the, it's the pastor and his wife, in some ways they're kind of, it's, it's them themselves that they're selling. They're the glue that's got to hold it together. They're the ones that it's, people join because they know the pastor and his wife and they, and they kind of hold them, hold them together. Right? Uh, but you can only do that kind of up to... 30, something like that. And that's when you need to be start maturing people or bringing people in who are ministry-minded enough to help you get past 30. If everything revolves around the pastor and his wife, you can't get past 30. That's why some churches get stuck at that. Now, to go from maybe 30 to 80, uh, that's when you need to have some leaders trained to actually people. Um, the beauty, I reckon, probably from what I've seen, your quickest growth in Australia happens from... 30-ish people up to maybe 80, 90 people. Why? Because when you turn up, it's not awkward. You turn up and there's 15 people, it can be just a little kind of awkward. Um, you can still be re- feel reasonably anonymous, but the pastor knows everybody and there's a visitor, there's a visitor, there's a visitor. Okay? It can still work. And the pastor can still know every, hold people in relationship. Um, but by then you need you do need systems in terms of welcoming people and you probably need a visitor's card and 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 systems about follow up and and so on okay if you're going to cross the 80 barrier though and it could be 80 or 100 cross the 80 or 100 barrier that's where people knowing and being close to the pastor that that's where that hits the wall if everything relies on the pastor or his wife being wonderful people and having you over for dinner you won't get past 80 or 100. You just won't. What have you got to have? That's when either you, you, your pastor's got to be a good enough preacher to put, to put the umbrella up uh, and the church grows under, under the preaching umbrella or you've got to start multiple congregations. Okay? If, if, if your pastor is a, a great, gifted, sparkling preacher, you can grow past the 80 and people will put up with not knowing him personally because he's a great preacher uh, and so on. 
But if that's not the case and not particularly gifted preacher, you just start multiple congregations. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, it seems like it, it seems like large groups. It will vary from one part of Australia to another, um, uh, but it just seems to me as I've seen churches grow, they grow quickest from that kind of 40, 30, 40 up to 80, 90, that kind of thing, and then after that, you've got to be pretty switched on about systems in a church working. Uh, and, and if I could say your average pastor who's friendly to people can do that. After that, I think guys struggle to get beyond that kind of size. Now, you've got some, to grow a church significantly bigger, uh, you need to be a gifted preacher. So I've mentioned Andrew Hurd. He is an exceptional preacher. Um, and they've really, they've really grown much bigger than that. Um, yeah, uh, I think generally Australians are more, un- well, here's a total random comment from me, right? Generally Australians are less comfortable in a big group than Americans are and Americans are more likely to celebrate success than, than Aussies are. Aussies are walking in, yeah, what's wrong here, right? Americans will say, yahoo, isn't this great? Okay, there's that, that kind of difference. But the social dynamics might also depend a little bit on the socio-economic side of things. Um, I had one mate, uh, a Presbyterian guy who worked in a housing commission area, and he thought 80 was the ceiling in terms of, uh, you know, housing commission people just not comfortable in huge groups. They want the smaller groups. Um, there comes a time, you see, your churches, there's a growth dynamic in, in different churches, and that is... Um, uh, how can I put it? There's a spiritual growth dynamic, and that is that you uh, you preach the gospel. God blesses that and sees people converted. But there's also there's another kind of growth dynamic. What is it that brings people to your church? And if it's, for example, um, you know, youth and children's, it might be that you hooked up with a school and there's a youth and children's program, and that's what brings people in the door. That's good. If it's though that the pastor is a magnetic personality and it's getting to know him and he's super friendly and everything, there's a built-in there's a built-in ceiling on that. You just can't know more than the best guys can't know more than 150 people, and you won't get past that if that's you. Okay. Now, if preaching's what it is, and he's a great preacher, uh, your limiting factor is the size of your building. Okay. So it's worth trying to understand what's your, what's your growth dynamic. What's actually going to bring people. I don't mean convert people, but what's going to bring people into, into the church so they can hear the gospel? Um, and, um, yeah, is it, is it that you do brilliant youth and children? I know a few churches that have been supported and held up by brilliant um, teenage work. And it's the teenage work is kind of half the volume of the church, and, and that's what's kept the church alive. But it's worth trying to see what is it, what are we expecting will bring people into our church? Another dynamic is the fact that you just got the denominational shingle hanging out. And it used to be, say, um, in the 1950s in Sydney, you hang up the, the Anglican shingle and people would come. They weren't necessarily converted, but you, they would come in the door and you'd be able to preach the gospel to them. In, in parts of Sydney, that still holds, uh, but in, uh, not nearly what it used to. And there's parts of Sydney now where 
the denominational thing just doesn't work. And uh, if that's what you're relying on, you've got problems. Let me go really quick. Sorry, I'll wrap it on. A... Comments? Okay. Public meetings, you've got to work out who's your audience. They just say, oh, we aim at everybody. No, no you don't. We, we all have a culture in church. The trouble is it becomes invisible to us. So are you, are you aiming at tertiary educated people um, or are you aiming at uh, people who um, are not particularly educated? Uh, what language do you um, speak in? Uh, uh, what kind of music do you have? How formal is your meeting? How do people dress? They're all different. You're actually making decisions even without realising it about who you're trying to reach. Next one, preaching and teaching. We've got to learn how to preach or work on how to preach to two audiences. You ought to be speaking to the unbeliever and the believer each week. And I don't just mean, like I said, don't just mean tack John 3.16 on the end of every sermon. Each part of the Bible you, you open speaks to the believer and the unbeliever and calls them both to repentance, okay, to, to, to trust Jesus uh, in how they live. Um, next one. Got to actually work on preaching to those who aren't there. Okay? You, you've heard that expression before? Tim Keller's got a brilliant thing on this, and I know Philip Jensen's been talking about it for years as well. What's he mean? But your preaching shapes your congregation, and as you preach to those who aren't there, um, or your congregation will become like who you preach to. If you've got a congregation that's all ladies, for example, uh, the preacher's got to learn to preach to men. You say, well, wait a minute, there aren't any men there. That's right. If you preach sermons that men would want to hear, the girls will bring their husbands or bring the men. Okay? If you are, if, I remember one, one farmer saying, uh, when, I, when I look, oh, sorry, yeah. When I hear most ministers speak, they speak like they're speaking to women and kids. And then I look around and they are. Um, <laughs> So one is, if you've got ladies, isn't it? I'm not against ladies in church, but saying if you've only got ladies in church, if you only preach to the ladies, that's all you have. If you speak to men, they'll, the men will come along, all right? If you speak to the unbeliever in an understanding, engaging way, people will think, hey, wait a minute, I could bring Bob or Fred or Sally or my neighbour or my brother or whatever. And, okay, so you create your congregation by preaching, even if you're preaching to people who aren't there, and we've got to learn to run church for the people who aren't there as well. Not completely, but keep them in mind. And like I said, I reckon a 10% tweak in the way that we run church can have a major effect on how accessible and understandable it is for, um, uh, for the unbeliever. Um, okay. Um, oh, leadership. Okay, another... Um, landmines, absolutely. What I've seen young guys do in, um, and, and we're all guilty of it one way or another, but a couple of particular uh, mistakes that some young church planters have made, and man, has it been pain for them, is appointing people to leadership too early. Uh, easily done and very, very painful. Either too early or too young. Uh, that is why 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6 says... He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Um, and 1 Timothy 5.22 says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't appoint people to leadership too quickly. You're much better off to have a gap than to have the wrong person in it. Okay? Because I tell you, there's a world of pain if you appoint the wrong person, he or she, to leadership. Yes, sir. 
mature young guys to death. Where do you say, all right, now you're an elder, or can you help me leave? And where are you just fudging the definition? Um, yeah, good question. Good question. That's right. And I, in the hypothetical, I don't know, but I just think that these guys are good young blokes, but I, oh, you just, I don't know. I just think they, they may have been put to, I wouldn't have called them elders. They could be involved in leading and leading their peers and that kind of thing. But uh, I don't know. Am I, maybe I'm just on the other side of 50. Okay. Well, given the point of are, as you said, younger, in yep. the early 30s or late 20s, yep. um, they're an elder, a teaching elder all of a sudden. Yep. Um, yeah, that might be right. Maybe I'm just on the other side of 50. I just be aware of using the term elder for somebody who's 21. Okay, 22. Now, the flip side of that is this. Um, in, in denominations, it, I used to, I don't work with the diocese anymore, but I used to enjoy working the diocese in one way, and that is I was 50, and I could be in meetings and still be a boy. <laughs> you know, I'm the youngest in the room by 15 years. Hey, look at that. Right? So, you know, you, got, you can be, um, you know, you can be President of the United States at 46, but you couldn't be, hold this office in a particular denomination. Uh, you know, we just got to get out of the way and make room for the young guys. Uh, yep. So, so both of those are true, but I, but I am absolutely sure. If you're not sure about the character, um, you know, the godliness, particularly the godliness uh, and the giftedness and the ability of someone, don't appoint them to leadership, because you 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 appoint easily, uh, you know, you appoint quickly. But man, there's a world of pain. Anyway, okay. Uh, really quickly, um, finances. I've talked about the the um, the full time part time dilemma that you know part time is going to take a lot longer and it's a lot harder and it's more wear and tear and at the same time one hundred and fifty thousand for a start up on a church plant Ooh, okay um, in terms of grants they should always be declining and that is you want to move financial responsibility onto the church planter uh, and onto the church plant so that uh, grants and so on would be uh, declining over the years the next thing. You've got to learn to raise money, um, fundraising and so on. It, you, you just got to learn to do it and uh, it's always awkward and you've got to learn to talk to your congregation members about money and uh, how to raise money and so on within the church and wider. And uh, I always say the first three letters of fundraising is F-U-N, okay? That's where you got to learn. Learn the fun of it. Right, Scott? <laughs> yep, that's it. So you want to, you've got to have young guys who are, and you've got to learn, it's the discipline of doing it regularly um, rather than the crisis time when, you know, you, you're way behind budget and that kind of thing. Um, now, here's what's interesting. I don't know, and I'm happy for Scott to correct me, I don't know of any church plant where the young couple who want to go and plant the church are gifted and they, God's wired them up to do this and they're passionate about it. I don't know of any church plant in the moment in Australia that's being held back by lack of funds. Do you? No. If you've got the vision, the passion, if God's blessed, you can raise the money. Really, that's, that's the point. The money comes from somewhere. And, it, and it's a pretty good uh, litmus test. If you're, the, if you're the one to go and do it, the money, the money follows you. People recognise that. Okay? So, but we've got to learn to fundraise. Uh, then next, let me just read the list. For the minister, the planter, here's some of the problems. One is uh, workaholism, uh, and that is, you know, you start the church plant, you think you, the problem is never stopping work. 
Um, as my dear sweet wife tells me, the job of Jesus is already taken. You can take a day off, dear. All right. Um, so then, so there's workaholism. The flip side of that is laziness, and that is at 164 hours of the week and not being disciplined. The other problems can be not praying enough, um, being disorganised. Like I say, if you've got a church of 40 people, um, one day for Sunday, one day for a sermon, one day for visiting, that leaves three and a half days. I want to know what are you doing those other three and a half days of the week? Um, uh, okay. Um, what else have we got? Uh, yeah, okay. In terms of being undisciplined, you've got to realise what a privilege it is to be in Christian ministry. Absolute privilege. If you took the average pastor's salary as 50000 a year, and, and generally it costs a lot more than that to have a guy in ministry, 50000 a year, and you're working 50 hours a week, that's every hour you have an opportunity to do ministry, it costs somebody $20. Now, it's more likely that it costs a hundred dollars, a hundred thousand to have you in ministry as a whole package and you're working 50 hours. That's forty dollars an hour. And I don't want to put people on a guilt trip, but what are you doing with that time? It's someone is, is sacrificing so you have this privilege. We've got to not waste it. One of the other big, um, uh, pressures though on young guys particularly is looking sideways. Okay? Looking sideways. And I'll confess, I'm an old guy, I can say it. We've been going, well, I don't know how long. We started two years ago. Um, we've, been, we've had the public meetings this year. We've only got really 20 people in the loop. I look sideways and see there's other guys who've got 60, 80, 90 people. And I think, oh, uh, how can I talk up what I'm doing? And uh, uh, Real pressure on young guys. I'm an old guy, it doesn't matter. But the young guys, that kind of looking sideways thing can be, can be really hard. And uh, they've got to stop it because it's ungodly. Um, okay, there's that one. Uh, financial pressures, and that is, um, have I got enough money? Can I cope financially? Um, you can get a coach to help you with that. Learn to fundraise. The other thing is, get used to it. If you're in a, if you're in a, if you're in a church ministry that's got loads of money, and you haven't got a financial worry in the world, you're not doing enough. Really, you're not doing enough. Okay. When I talked to Andrew Hurd, um, I used to talk to Andrew, who's planted this church on the central coast above Sydney. I talked to Andrew 10, 12 years ago, struggling financially, um, there's pressure on and so on, the ministry's growing, how does he cap? I talk to him now, financial pressure, how do I raise enough money, I've got to build this new building. It's just there's two extra zeros on the amounts. Okay? And he's got 1,600 people a weekend, and it, there will always be financial pressures. And if you haven't got financial pressure, I'm saying you're not, you're not doing enough, okay? Um, so get used to it. And then the other one is, the other one that's kind of a challenge to me, if I could say, is you need to, we've got to adjust our lives so that we're prepared to focus our life on this little group, okay? Um, I've got lots of things that I can do and so on. I'm trying to rearrange my life so that I've got more time to give to this little group of people and to love them and teach and, and to see that grow. Um, it's easy to kind of... Um, you know, go to conferences and talk the talk and all that kind of thing, whereas we've got to actually rearrange our life so that we can focus. If we're going to donate, a, uh, dedicate our life to growing a church, that's what you've got to focus on. And I have heard um, some people say one particular church planter um, was in love with the idea of church planting, <laughs> but not necessarily in love with his church and the people in it. So that's... Uh, okay, now what's the lesson from that? 
all of that stuff I've just um, run through really quickly. Um, uh, you need to have a right theology of ministry. And the place to start with a right theology of ministry is the pastorals, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. And then to have a right theology of work and a right theology of rest and an audience of one. That, that's where it, like, it comes back to theology. You have to have a right theology. And then also a coach who will keep reminding you of that for these first few years of ministry work and a peer group as well. A, a peer group network's a great help. Uh, I'm going to push on. Dave's giving me seven more minutes. Marriage pressures. You can see why marriage pressures come, um, and this is probably the thing I worry about most for young guys. Uh, generally, uh, a planter's wife has got little kids, um, no money, uh, an absent husband, um, and a wife is tired, and, you, and the expectation is that she will be the unpaid women's and children's worker, and you can see why some girls kind of lose enthusiasm. Okay? Uh, and you need someone who's close enough to see... Um, how things are going. And here's, a, here's my take on it. If the church plant doesn't work, that's bad. Go do something else. If the marriage fails, it's a disaster. Okay? We need to give people permission to fail. You had to go to the church plant. It didn't work. That's fine. Let's go and try something else. Okay? That, that's fine. It, it doesn't matter in the big picture. But, man, if a marriage fails, it's just... That's a disaster, okay? And you need people close enough to young couples who will see that and say, hey, listen, you guys actually need to stop doing this or take a break or whatever, okay? Give him a uppercut so he, yeah. Um, all right. Uh, platform costs. When you, when you start a ministry, you, you, you work on a platform, the opportunity to the opportunity to preach, to meet people, that kind of thing. And there's a couple of different options. One is you work on someone else's platform. That is, you say you work for a denomination uh, or you work with a church. Um, they give you, you know, a building. They give you a, a sign to hang out, uh, you know, the Presbyterian or uh, Christian Reformed or whatever it is and so on. There's a cost to that platform and benefits. The cost is... You've got to play by their rules. It's fair enough. It's their property. It's their organisation. You, you fit in with, with their rules. The benefit is you get a building, you get a sign, you get insurance, you get admin support, all that kind of thing, but you fit into their system. The alternative is you start your own church. You, you start your own independent thing. Now, the, the great benefit of that is you do whatever you want, okay? You're accountable to Jesus. You set it up however you want. You do what you want and so on. Anyone tell me the cost? You've got to build it yourself, okay? You, you, you've got to gather your own resources and so you've got to build the platform yourself. But that's the, that's the, the trade-off. Now, for, for young guys who want to go with denominations and get the building and the finances and the admin support and all that sort of thing, that's great. But don't whinge to me about having to fit into their rules. That's fair, okay? Here's, here, um, how can I say? Uh, the, the trade-off... To start with a denomination and so on is generally much easier and quicker and you've got a, uh, a run on the first five years will be easier. But you've still got to fit into their rules. To start as an independent, the, the first few years will be much harder, but if you do make it through, you really have, you have kind of more freedom, if you like. But generally, if you're, 
if I can put it, if you're politically wise and careful, you can still have great freedom in denominations. Right? Great freedom. What I think, you, where I see potential problems is in mother-daughter church plants, where senior ministers and assistant or church planters haven't worked out expectations. So you start with mother-daughter. You've got the the mother church, and I talk about that a little bit later on. You find a group of people and you start a new church and you've got a, a young guy leading and it goes really well. Um, and the, the senior pastor is thinking, well, this will be great. And, um, uh, you know, sorry, they're both friends. It's wonderful. The daughter church begins to grow up and becomes a teenager and gets to 100 or whatever and is self-sufficient and everything. And the young guy's thinking, that's great. We'll be able to be independent. I'll have my own church. We can do our own thing. Fantastic. And the senior minister's thinking, wow, isn't it great that the daughter's grown up and she'll be able to help us and stay close and the umbilical cord's made out of steel and very different expectations. It's not right or wrong. It's just two different sets of expectations. And it's... the. The young guy in the daughter church wants to get away and do his own thing and very few senior ministers want to let go and it's, uh, it's a, off, a frequent problem. And so I don't want to say what the answer is, but I reckon it's even worth trying to write down on paper and be clear about your expectations with one another. Um, we're going to work in what way for two or three years? We hope that eventually it would work too uh, and so on. I, I think that's that's a fairly regular problem in terms of senior ministers not being able to let go and church planters getting a bit kind of bolshy and stroppy and so on. Um, really quickly, infrastructure. Once you start having money involved and once you start um, uh, leasing buildings and all that kind of thing, you need to have some kind of constitution or administrative structure. Uh, I've seen one church plant where uh, a number of the, some of the young guys thought they needed to um, get the, the pastor who founded the church to resign and push him out. And fortunately, he had a constitution in place. It would have been the wrong thing to do. He had a constitution in place. It meant they couldn't do it, and they'd agreed on it. I think you need, if you're independent, you need to have a constitution. So Geneva's got a whole range of different ones that have been beautifully drafted by smart people that can be templates. Or... If you're in a denomination, you've got your administrative structure, which is a great advantage. But to just think, oh, we're all mates and we'll just roll along, no. Our little group on a weekend isn't up to this yet, but it'll be happening sometime, uh, I trust. Accounting, you've got to be able to keep track of money and where it goes. Proverbs 27, 23, know well the condition of your flocks and herds. Um, I spoke to, we spoke to a church planter the other day who didn't, wasn't able to get proper um, information on income and so on for five months. Well, that, that's a disaster. You can't operate that way. You've got to know what your income is and how you're going financially. And propriety, that's not property, that's propriety. Um, you need to have systems in place from the beginning in terms of handling money uh, and, and so on and where it goes and two people counting it or, or whatever it is. Um, and I think, Dave, I'll stop there.